And we've, we've come to possibly one of the, well, definitely one of the strangest passages in Joshua, and probably one of the strangest passages in all the Scripture. I, I actually find it quite funny in, in many ways. Um, we've also skipped over chapter 8, because we, a few weeks ago, learned about the victory that God gave them at Jericho, and chapter 8 is the same thing again. God gives them yet another victory. And at the end of that, what happens is Joshua renews the covenant with God, and he does this partly through reading aloud the law of Moses to them, the Word of God. So they were, if you like, a bit on a spiritual high. They just had an incredible victory against people that they'd actually lost against in chapter 7. In chapter 8, God just gives them the victory. And now they have just heard the Word of God, and they are fueled and just on what, you know, what, we would, what we could call sort of a spiritual high. And this is where we come in, one of the strangest passages in Scripture, I think. But I do think that God shows us three things about who He is that we can and need to get from this passage. The first one I think He shows us is that His Word, the truth about God, brings opposing reactions. Um, A a very old theologian called Matthew Henry once said, not about this passage, but about a passage we'll look at in a second, he said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So the same sun that melts wax, that does one thing to wax, does, you could almost say, the opposite thing to clay. If you put wax on top of a candle, it melts. If you put clay near a flame, it hardens. And what he's getting at is that a certain truth, a certain idea, a certain fact can have opposing reactions depending on the people that you talk to. And we see this all the time. We see this whenever there's an election. We see this whenever there's there's a sports score. One side will be really happy about it, the other side will be really angry. We see this all the time. The same truth, the same piece of news, the same, the same thing seems to cause opposite reactions, just as the sun melts wax and yet it hardens clay. And this is what we see here. See, the nations around had heard what God had done for Israel. They'd heard of the victories that God was giving them time and time again. And yet in verses 1 and 2, we see the reaction of most of the Canaanites. What they want to do is fight. They band together. They're probably not friends in the first place, but they decide to put that aside, band together to fight against Israel. They'd heard... They'd seen what had happened at Jericho. They'd seen what had happened um, at Ai. And all the previous victories that God had given Israel. And their reaction is, we want to fight them. If you think about it, it's complete foolishness. And yet that is the reaction that it causes in them. When they see God getting His way, when they see God's will happening, when they see the people of God praising Him and doing His work, 
It causes anger, and it stirs up the desire for war against them. So that's one reaction we see. The second reaction is in verse 3. It starts there. The Gibeonites, who were Canaanites, they were part of the, they were part of the nations um, that Israel was supposed to fight against. And yet their reaction is the complete opposite. Again, same news. They've heard, they saw what happened at Jericho, they saw what happened at Ai. They know of all the victories that God has given them time and time again. And yet their reaction is to realize we're on the losing side. All the nations around are going to fight against a God who does not lose. So what they do, well, they devise, in my mind, a pretty genius and and fairly hilarious plan to protect themselves. Now, the passage is not encouraging us to do the same type of thing. It's not encouraging us to deceive other churches to try to get in. That's not at all what God is showing. But what he is showing is that the Gibeonites feared God. They feared him. They were terrified because they knew that God would get his victory. And so instead of fighting, they went in. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Rahab when the, the spies came in to kind of take a look at the land. And there's quite a lot of parallels. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was part of the people that God had said, destroy. And yet she trusted that God would win. She trusted that the land belonged to God and that he was going to get his way. She feared God. She called God. She said, I know that your God is the God of heaven above and the earth below. And so she made a deal to be safe, to be saved. And we see the same thing happen with the Gibeonites. And this is even more striking, I think, when the Israelites find out who the Gibeonites actually are. When they actually find out that they have made a covenant with people they were supposed to destroy, the Israelites give them, they don't kill them because they can't, they've made a covenant, but they give them painful and toilsome work. They say, okay, we can't kill you, but we're going to make you cutters of wood and drawers of water to fuel the worship. You're basically going to be our servants. You could almost say you're basically going to be our slaves. And the Gibeonites' reaction isn't, well, you made a covenant with us. We would actually like a better deal out of this. We'd like to be treated, you know, maybe as equals. Definitely not as your servants. Definitely not as slaves. That's not their reaction. In verse 25, they say, okay, whatever you think is best, do to us. And what's striking is that Gibeon, the Gibeonites were actually known as fearsome warriors. They were known as a nation of warriors. And yet here they are submitting to the people of God, saying, fine, we'll be your servants. Because to be honest, it's better to be servants amongst the people of God than to be known as warriors who are going to get destroyed anyway. They saw that it was better to serve God as lowly people than to be mighty sinners. 
We read the, we read, if we carried on with our reading earlier from Psalm 84, we would have read the same idea coming from David. What does he say? He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Gibeonites understood this. They got the fact that really it was better to be a servant with God's people than to be seen as mighty, but really going to be destroyed in the end. You see, being part of God's people definitely does not guarantee a comfortable position. We know this. As people of God, we know this, that it doesn't guarantee comfort. It doesn't guarantee fame. What it does guarantee is that we are safe in God's arms. We know that God watches over us and that He keeps us. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than anywhere else. You see, all the powerful nations back then and all the powerful organizations and basically everyone and everything that fights and opposes God is coming to an end, will be destroyed in the end. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's in vain that they do this. So we see the opposite reactions happening here. And as a gospel-centered church, as a church that is committed to preaching and sharing and living out the whole gospel, the true gospel, we need to be aware that as we do this, we're going to see these opposing reactions. You see, when Matthew Henry talked about the sun that melts wax and hardens clay, he was talking about this passage in 2 Corinthians 2. It says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And as a gospel-centered church, we need to be so aware that to some, this news will be a fragrance of life. People will find life in the gospel. And to others, this will cause them to hate. So why is it that one, that the gospel, the same facts, the same news, causes these different reactions? You see, although the gospel is good news, the gospel digs deep into us and shines light on things that we do not want light shone upon. We talked about this earlier during a time of confession. And some will submit to this. Some will allow that light to be shone on the part of their lives that they know goes against God because they know that in the end, it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to be anywhere else. So to those of us who have done that. We have said, shine your light on what's inside me. Go for it. Reveal everything in me that is against you because I know that it's better to be in your house than anywhere else. And yet others 
will harden their hearts and refuse to be doorkeepers in the house of God. They will refuse to be weak and dependent on Him. The gospel is the only news, the, the, the church is the only place where being weak is a good thing. We can rejoice in being weak because we are dependent on a mighty God. And yet some will harden their hearts and refuse to be weak and dependent on Him. We'll see a bit later more of why it is that some soften their hearts and some harden their hearts. But first of all, we need to be aware as a gospel-centered church, we will see these different reactions. The second thing I think God is showing us is that although we can look at the Gibeonites and say, okay, they trusted God, they feared God, that's good, you can't turn a blind eye to what they did. And although it's, I think it's pretty funny what they did, we also have to realize the severity of what actually happened. You see, because when God was giving the law to Moses and telling him, this is the land that you're going to conquer, this is how you need to do it, he said, clearly says, all Canaanite nations you need to drive out. Do not make a co-. He explicitly said, do not make any covenant with them. In Deuteronomy 20, he says, now you can make covenants with far-off nations. Don't make covenants with the Canaanites, drive them out, but if it's a far-off nation, you can. Now, whether the Gibeonites knew about this or not, I'm not sure they would have, I don't know why they would have, maybe they did, doesn't matter, their plan was genius. There are costumes, they dress up. There are rehearsed speeches, probably a few tears, but it was all deceit. They deceived the Israelites into thinking they were someone else. And if we look at verse seven, the Israelites start out really well. The Israelites are actually onto them straight away because the Gibeonites say, we're from far away. And in verse seven, Some of the leaders say, well, how do we know that? You could live next door. And they're just right on, like, the Gibeonites must have been sweating. They're like, how did you do that? That's incredible. You're on to us already. So, you think they're on to them. And then, you see, because they know what happens when they let sin in. They were probably on to them so quickly because in chapter 7, we'd seen what happens when the Israelites let sin in. And they knew we can't make covenants. And we've just seen what God does when there is sin. And we don't want that happening again. And yet, they lose it so quickly. And how do they lose it? The Gibeonites just flatter them. The Gibeonites say, oh, but we are, we're your servants. We've come from far away, maybe to even pay homage to you. We've heard of you. We've heard of your God. We've heard of how all these victories that he's given you. We want to make a covenant with you because you are such a mighty nation and your God is so great. And they're still kind of onto them. Joshua's like, well, where do you come from? They dodge the question. They, don't, they never say where this far off nation is. 
They said, look, I mean, look at our clothes, look at our bread. It was warm when we left, but look, it's moldy now. The Israelites look at it and say, well, looks legit to me. You're in. See, from an earthly perspective, no more evidence was needed. But the key is in verse 14. Key is in verse 14. Because they look at the evidence, they say, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They trusted the sub story, they trusted the evidence but they didn't inquire of God. And you might ask, like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, the Gibeonites were probably genuine. They were probably terrified. I mean, they were. And okay, they lied, but I mean, in the end, it was to save themselves. You can't really blame them for that. But the problem is, when God told the Israelites, do not make covenants with the Canaanites, it was partly because the Canaanites were sinful and rebellious but also because he knew that the Israelites were so easily led astray. See, in Deuteronomy 7, it says, do not give your daughters or sons to them. Don't take their daughters or sons because they will lead you astray into idolatry. So it's not just that the, it's not just that the Canaanites lied to them. It's not that the Gibeonites lied to them. That's the big problem. The big problem is that Joshua and the leaders of Israel are putting all of the people at risk putting them at the greatest risk of being led astray into idolatry. See, Joshua thought he was clever enough to decide who was in or out. And yet, he puts them the biggest risk they can be at, to be under the, under the wrath of God and to be led astray. That's the big difference between the Gibeonites and Rahab. There was no deceit in what Rahab did, she even acknowledged God as God of heaven above and earth below. And she saved them. You see, the Israelites could have asked from God. They could have asked. They had prophets. They had people who were there to inquire of God. And God is not silent. In chapter 7, they cast lots to find out who had sinned. And God spoke. God showed them who it was. And yet here making one of the most serious decisions. They think they are clever enough to do it, and they get themselves stuck in a covenant that is made in God's name, so they can't break it. So that's kind of the story there. Um, how do we, as Foundation Church, and as Christians today, even start to apply this? This situation is not likely to happen to us. Someone isn't going to show up to the door in a costume pretending, you know, it's not going to be as blatantly obvious as this. And yet I think it applies to us in a very, very serious way. Which is as a church, when making decisions, God gets the final word. You see, this is why we're so serious about who and how we baptize this is why we are so serious about who comes into membership. This is why we're serious about who takes communion. Because when those things happen, what we're saying is that we recognize this person as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. 
We recognize this person as someone to whom God says yes. And if we start to think that we're clever enough to do that on our own, then we're going to fall in to the same, we're going to make the same mistake that Joshua and the leaders made. Now, you might think, is, is this cynical? Are we being suspicious in being so careful with the way that we do things? No, because every time someone comes into membership or someone is baptized here or someone takes communion here, we declare this person belongs to Christ. We declare this person has life. We declare this person is right with God. And this is a glorious but serious thing. And when we know we're being guided by God's wisdom, when we know that we are affirming this and that God is affirming it, when we know that God is affirming that yes, this person belongs to me and I hold him or her for all eternity, what a glorious privilege. But if we think we're clever enough and we don't ask for God's wisdom on this, this is how we let wolves in. This is how we end up with leaders or members who look right, dress right, the words they say sound right at first maybe, and yet then lead people astray. We see this more and more. Church scandals happening, abuse happening in the church, all of this. Not saying all of it is because of this type of thing, but some of it will be because we do not ask for God's wisdom enough when, and we do not take these decisions seriously enough. We run the risk of saying yes to someone that God actually says no to. And this is why we're so serious about this. See, this passage tells us, seek God's wisdom and guidance when making decisions, especially when they affect the whole church. And we can't afford to ever think that we're clever enough. We need Him to guide us and to speak to us. And we have the assurance that He will. We have the assurance that He will. So that's the second thing that God shows us. First thing is that God's word brings opposing reactions. Second one is that we need God's wisdom. And the third one is that God uses brokenness and sin to display the gospel. See, because the story seems to actually end pretty well for the Gibeonites. And you might think, was, was God tricked? Was he, you know, they got into this covenant. Did God kind of turn away for a few minutes, turn back, and this covenant's made, oh, it's made in my name, well, okay, we'll put up with the Gibeonites for a bit. I won't destroy them because there's been a covenant made, but I'm going to kind of let them die out, and then we'll just do away with them. No, it seems to end really well for them, in a way. See, because in verse 27, it says, it has the three words, to this day they remain cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of God. Now, not to this day, to the day when, obviously, that was written. But what the point being made is that God is keeping them. That covenant is still in place. He didn't just let them die out. 
He watches after them. In addition to that, their job was to fuel the worship of God. They were close to the worship of God, partly, probably, to destroy their idolatry and to really firm their faith in the true God. But God blessed them in the end. They were going to be close to the worship of God. Even more, in chapter 10, God gives Israel their most supernatural victory to keep the Gibeonites safe from the angry Canaanites who just found out what had happened. God makes the, st- the sun stand still at Gibeon. And if we keep reading, it doesn't just stop in Joshua. When, it co- when Saul is made king over the people of God, he puts some of the Gibeonites to death and God causes a famine. And if we move on even more, in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they have come back from captivity and they're rebuilding the wall, the Gibeonites are fully involved in the worship, in the temple worship. So what's God doing? Well, if we go back to the idea that God softens, that some hearts are softened, and some hearts are hardened. Joshua actually, the book of Joshua tells us why this happens. In Joshua 11, it says of the Canaanites, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. See, what, what it's saying is that God is completely sovereign over every event of this book and every second of every life. He hardens and he softens hearts sovereignly. And so what he's doing here is he uses brokenness, deceit, sin, that these people are committed, and he actually brings it about. He brings about the salvation of the Gibeonites and victory for Israel. Now, why does he do this? Why would he use these things? Well, as we've already said, God's wisdom is beyond us, and his ways are beyond us. He uses brokenness, and he turns it into a sign that he is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham to bless all nations. See, by accepting Gibeon in, he's showing that his favor is not only for Israel. He uses it to ultimately demonstrate the gospel. Doesn't mean there's, there's an excuse for sin. It doesn't mean we can just say, well, we can sin anyway because in the end, God is going to use it. But it is the assurance that He even uses our sin and our brokenness to work for good and to work for His glory. And we see this, especially this side of the cross. We see that God was sovereign over the worst sin, over Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He used it. He used it to bring about the salvation of all of his people. Because he is always sovereignly working for his glory and our good to demonstrate the gospel, and he is even able to use brokenness and sin to do this. See, we are just like the Gibeonites. 
people who don't deserve to be right with God, and people who desperately need Him. But unlike the Gibeonites, we are truly far off. We are truly worse than far off. We are dead in our sin. Unlike the Gibeonites, we truly are in rags and have nothing to bring. Unlike the Gibeonites, we can't hide behind some story. See, it's, we're so often tempted to pretend to be someone we're not, to pretend we have things sorted, but we can't hide from God. He knows who we are. He knows what we've done. He knows the stuff we try to hide from others, from ourselves, and even from Him. We can't hide from Him. But unlike the Gibeonites, we don't have to. We don't have to fear being found out. The Gibeonites probably freaked out when the Israelites were onto them, but we don't have to fear being found out. We don't have to fear being found unacceptable to God. We don't have to fear being found at odds with God. Is that because of something we've done? No. Because unlike Joshua, Jesus, the true and better Joshua, comes to find us in our far-off land. Unlike Joshua, Christ responds with reckless love instead of suspicion. Unlike Joshua, Christ makes a covenant that is pleasing to God. Unlike Joshua, Christ willingly and joyfully gives us life. And unlike Joshua, Christ doesn't reluctantly do this, and He definitely does not simply make us slaves and servants because He has to. Because unlike Joshua, Christ makes us children of God. And if we are believers, then this is a sure thing. We didn't gain it, and we can't lose it. Nothing will separate us from the one who willingly and joyfully gives us life. And we have the assurance that the one whose wisdom is above all else, the one who has softened our hearts, works all things, even our brokenness and sin, into a glorious demonstration of His grace and His glory. And He will do this until the day He comes again and we see Him face to face for all eternity. Let's pray.